Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 312th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most admired and influential singer-songwriters of all time. An inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and a seven-time Grammy nominee who, according to Rolling Stone, is one of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time, number 37 specifically, is responsible for one of the 500 greatest songs of all time, number 496 specifically, Running on Empty, and is responsible for three of the 500 greatest albums of all time, specifically number 375, Late for the Sky, number 391, The Pretender, and number 450, For Every Man the legendary Jackson Brown. In 1980, a piece in Rolling Stone stated, quote, In the 60s, Bob Dylan had an uncanny ability to define a decade and its denizens. Throughout the 70s and into the 80s, Jackson Brown has taken over this job and done it better than anyone else, close quote. The New York Times in 1983 added, quote, Jackson Brown and James Taylor were the most widely imitated singer-songwriters of the 1970s, Every FM radio station seemed to be playing records that had the confessional lyrics, folksy guitar picking, polished studio sheen, and Los Angeles session musicians one heard on Mr. Brown's albums, close quote. In 1994, the Los Angeles Times asserted that Brown, quote, ranks with James Taylor and Joni Mitchell as one of the leaders of the 70s singer-songwriter movement, close quote. And in 2004, Rolling Stone declared, quote, no one is more emblematic of the singer-songwriter movement than Jackson Brown. For most of the 70s, Brown provided the soundtrack for the baby boom generation's growth into adulthood, his music acting as both its personal and political conscience, close quote. But don't take the media's word for it. Listen to his fellow singer-songwriters. In 1970, David Crosby, an old friend of this podcast, told Rolling Stone that Brown was, quote, one of the probably 10 best songwriters around. He's got songs that'll make your hair stand on end. He's incredible, close quote. In 2004, Bruce Springsteen, who used to open for Brown, said in his speech inducting Brown into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that Brown is, quote, simply one of the best, close quote. Quote, wrote some of the most beautiful breaking up music, break your heart music of all, close quote, and that his, quote, meticulousness of craft was always matched and balanced by the deepness of soul, close quote. And in the 2013 Emmy-winning documentary History of the Eagles, Glenn Frey, the co-lead singer and frontman of the Eagles, who at one point lived in an apartment above Brown's, said, quote, I learned through Jackson's ceiling and my floor how to write songs. Elbow grease, 
time, thought, and persistence, close quote. Today, nearly a half century after the release of Brown's self-titled debut studio album, he is still making great music, and he is now in the running for a Best Original Song Oscar nomination as well for the song A Human Touch, a tune that he co-wrote with Leslie Mendelson and Steve McEwen for the end credits of 5B, a powerful documentary feature about the first-ever age unit of an American hospital. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 71-year-old and I discussed how he got into music in the first place, how he wound up as part of the Laurel Canyon scene in the late 60s, to whom he was referring in his song The Pretender, how his fifth and best-selling studio album, the seven-times platinum live album Running On Empty, was an unplanned happy accident, why his songs about love and heartbreak eventually gave way to political activist songs, up to and including A Human Touch, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jackson, great to see you again, and what an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much Thank for you. doing it. We always begin here with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? My father was a journalist, worked for the Army in Europe after the war. I was born right after the war in 1948 in Heidelberg, Germany. My father was from L.A., and my mother was from Minneapolis. Did I hear correctly that part of what he was writing about was music? Yeah, he wrote about music. He was, he was he, I don't know what all he wrote about, but yeah, I've, I've got several old articles of him interviewing trumpet players. My father had a deep love of jazz. He had, I think in the army, he'd been in the army band, and there's a lot of funny you know, stories about that because mm-hmm. it wasn't, wasn't his music, but yeah, he played jazz piano, and um, in the band, he played trumpet. And he used to say, like, his band leader would say, Brown, if you can't play good, play loud. <laughs> well, it was, again, if my information's correct, it's interesting that more so than your father, the person in your family who maybe turned you on to music was your younger brother? Yeah, in a way, he was a big influence on me. We both, everybody played instruments. I played trumpet, my brother played saxophone, my sister played the piano. But by the time we were, you know, in our early teens, we were all playing the instruments that interested us more. And I was playing guitar, and my brother was playing piano and guitar. And he gravitated to the radio. He liked rock and roll. So he was, you know... And I, I liked folk music, and I was barricaded in that world of folk that was just sort of very pure in a way, you know. Uh, Bob Dylan was a huge influence. And around the time... All kinds of bands were like forming around what had formerly been their folk roots. You know, it's like like Yusuf's Love and Spoonful as an example. I mean, somebody that played John Sebastian played in jug bands and stuff. And but around that time, my brother started playing piano in a way that really, yeah, really a really powerful kind of playing that where the left hand with these big bass lines, these big whole notes. You know, like power chords really on the piano and um, arpeggiating on the right hand. I, I remember walking in one day and hearing him playing We Gotta Get Out of This Place by the Animals. And we sort of listened to pop radio all the time. Rock and roll was, you know, everywhere. And um, I just never heard anybody do that on the piano by themselves. I thought, this is fantastic. So, yeah. Do you recall if there was a specific moment when it occurred to you that these songs that you're listening to on the radio didn't just come out of nowhere, that there were actually songwriters behind these. Mm-hmm. These are mm-hmm. people that are supposedly making a living doing this, and you could be one yeah. of those people? Well, I, all those thoughts didn't come together like that, but yeah. 
There was a moment when Jackie DeShannon was being interviewed on the Lloyd Thaxton program, and it was a daytime rock program. For those people my age, you can remember Lloyd Thaxton used to sort of like pretend to play. He'd pretend to sing or pretend <laughs> to play, and he was sort of lip sync was like a phrase that he used to describe what he was doing. But you know, he'd he'd play Herb Alpert and play the trumpet and pretend to play these notes. He would like you know. But artists would go on those shows, and Jackie DeShannon had some great songs, and he was talking to her, and she said she wrote them. I thought, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> but also, I'd met I'd met this girl on the phone who was calling my sister a couple of years before that. I think I must have only been about 11, 12. This friend of my sister's called and she, she wasn't there. And I said, but she's, you know, she'll be back later. Call her back later. She says, what are you doing? I went, what do you mean? She says, well, you want to hear a song? <laughs> I went, sure. I want to hear a song. And she put the phone down and she sang this song. And it was kind of a doo-wop song, kind of like an Eddie, my love kind of thing, you know, I said, why did you play me that? She says, because I wrote it. I said, you made that up, right? Like, wow. <laughs> Again, you know, women singing songs about their lives. And then, you know, Jackie DeShannon was recorded by the Birds on their first album. And my brother was really into the Birds. I kind of, I looked askance at the Birds because I thought, you know, I mean, I was really into Pete Seeger. I was into right. Bob Dylan. I, I knew these songs that they were recording before they were uh, played with drums. It wasn't long before I thought they were brilliant, but at the time I just was really, mm, uh, it's I was funny kind of. It's because you're so now, uh, you know, you did quite a bit with Crosby, and so it's just hilarious yeah. that it started that way. So the way I've seen it described, a really a big turning point in your childhood and maybe just in finding your direction would have been literally moving from one side of the tracks to the other, essentially. Is that right? I mean, you were, the way it's been described in other interviews, you were kind of on the path to being a bit of a delinquent at one point. Mm. <laughs> I, th I think so, yeah. Sure. I wasn't thinking of those terms, you know. I was just <laughs> trying to think about surviving, really. And if everybody you knew was, you know, kind of a badass and, right. you know, everybody was pretty tough where I came from. Highland Park in Los Angeles was a primarily Mexican-American neighborhood, you know. A lot of gangs, and I knew the names of 10 gangs before I was 10, you know. Wow. Los yeah. Avenues, Clover, White Hill, Rose Hill, you know, <laughs> Dogtown, Frogtown, I mean, uh, White Fence. And I didn't know where any of these places were. Matter of fact, simple places like El Monte, which are really close to Highland Park, it was, it was a mythical land. It was like bordering Highland Park, but and it was a place where people went to dances or where they went to go cruising in their cars. But I was only I was younger than that, and so no place I ever went was a place I got myself, you know. Except downtown, we would we could take the bus downtown. Right. And so when you did move, essentially, I guess it's basically OC. There are a couple guys who you met who were older than you and into music. Is that those were interesting? Right. We moved to. Orange County. My mother and my father got new jobs and relocated. I think my father thought that he needed to move us out of Highland Park, and I think he was probably smart in doing that, you know. There were a lot of heavy goings-on, you know, gang fights, huge fights, you know, a block away in the playground, you know, in the, in the public. So when I moved there, I didn't know anybody, and I made a, a, one really good friend in school who lived more or less in my neighborhood, and He's a lifelong friend, and he's a guy who, was, who sang, and he liked the Righteous Brothers. I mean, he turned me on to a lot of music. He was really enthusiastic about soul music and the Righteous Brothers, and but also surfing and surf music and what it was on the radio. And 
kids, you know, like we were like 13 or something, you know. I think he also turned me on to uh, Mose Allison. I mean, we listened to a lot of music. You know, both our families were more intellectual than a lot of the kids we knew, you know. But at a certain point, I started hanging with these guys that were older than I was in high school. Um, when I first started high school in the ninth grade, one of the first things, I mean, I mean, it was inescapable. You, heard, you, go, you go to school and there was a band playing in the quad playing bluegrass. And those guys were, were really good. They were playing. It was a banjo and a guitar and a bass. And they were playing not the sort of limelighters folk music that you might see on the Hootenanny TV show. They were playing like Woody Guthrie songs. They were playing, you know, old-time folk music. And they sort of drove my interest in, in folk music. And from that point on, it was just a matter of, just in quick succession, you got turned on to white and black, gospel and blues and folk singers who right at that moment, you know, you started hearing people like Carolyn Hester, you know, or Judy Collins. Joan Baez was like the first record I ever bought was a really? Joan Baez record when I was 14. And right around that time, I was learning to play and sing a lot of these songs. And it was a big, uh, like my friend Steve Rowe calls it the, the folk scare, you know, the folk <laughs> scare of the 1960 five or something, but, you know, a lot of people were getting turned on to folk music, and I think that by by way of folk music, you're getting turned on to the actual, real history of this country. Mm -hmm. And I began having a much broader view of civil rights, which was, you know, something that was really more and more in the news. And, I mean, I li we lived in a very white community. <laughs> in fact, when we first moved there, I went to a, a more or less racially mixed middle school, and that was for one year. And the next year I was like in this high school more closer to where we had moved. My family had moved to this very white suburban tract home community. You ever see the picture of the dead where they're like in, in this row of tract houses? They yeah. look like warlocks or something. Matter of fact, they might have been called the warlocks at the time. But there's, there's like one house after another going up a hill that are identical. Well, that was the tract home my parents <laughs> transplanted us to, which was funny because... My father's father had built a really unusual house in Highland Park, and I grew up living in a house that looked more like a Spanish mission crossed with a Middle Ages castle. Well, so it's got to have been right around this point that you started really getting serious yourself about music, because how by the time you're, before you're even graduated from high school, you have a record deal, right? Well, it wasn't a record deal. It was a publishing contract. Publishing contract, okay. And... That it was with the company that I would like to have had a record deal with. <laughs> I didn't sing very well, and my friend Steve Noonan sang really well. But he didn't write very many songs himself. He did a little bit later, he started writing, but he wrote with a guy named Greg Copeland. And Greg Copeland was really an interesting person because he was in student government, you know, he, he wore a blazer to school, you know. He wore a tie and a blazer to school, and and yet... He was keenly interested in civil rights, and he found his way to a very progressive point of view from a very conservative family. I think the first thing I ever saw of him, he came into a speech class of, that, that I was in, and he gave a speech that had won a national competition. He was part of the forensics club, and he like had won this. And, and what it was, was a, basically it was <laughs> assailing the Kennedys and Camelot. He was sort of like, he had like a very sort of acerbic view of the, the cult around the Kennedys. And it was a very, you know, very sort of conservative mm -hmm. 
which is which is where we were living. I was living in Orange County, and more than one of my friend's parents belonged to the John Birch Society. They liked music. We all kind of we all bonded on music, and we didn't really talk about politics. Nor did we, you know, we just sort of like that's just old people stuff, you know. <laughs> and those friends whose parents were like that. She's fantastic. She's a school teacher, and she's one of my longest friend. Matter of fact, she's married to that other lifelong friend. You know, they're high school sweethearts and have been married for I don't know how many years now. It's got to be more than 50 years. Mm -hmm. So the current events that we were being taught about, as you can imagine, were sort of taught with a a, a bit of a skew. There was a bit of a bias there and a kind of bewilderment, I think. Like my civics instructor, I got kicked out of the class just for asking questions because it annoyed him that I was, you know, saying, well, why is Mario Savio a nut? Why, what's, why do you call him a nut? Like, what, what makes him crazy? What is it like? And he was, his reply would be, well, look at him. <laughs> just look at him. <laughs> crazy hair everywhere. And like him. And I, I, mean, I, I just really expected more substantive like, argument, you know, from him. And I would, I, and I, I just saw me as an antagonist, I think. So, you know, he, he moved me to another class. And meanwhile, kids in the class were like muttering, Pinko, under the breath, you know, I thought, what the fuck are they talking? <laughs> what are they talking about? Right. What happened in the 60s, yeah. uh, the vaunted 60s, I mean, it's like it was sort of like a hollowed, glowing yeah. term. You know, the 60s was, was an awakening that is still taking place today. It's, it's a struggle against a sort of very uh, preordained and prescribed version of, you know, America's place in the world and a racial and class structure, you know, that was being questioned all of a sudden. And, and, and um, we came into contact with, I mean, right away I met, you know, some, some of the black musicians I thought, you know, that was music I really loved. We'd go see uh, groups play, and there was a great group called Joe and Eddie, two guys, a duo, you know, and they were accompanied by this one guitar player who was a fantastic guy named Louis Shelton, who was kind of one of the Hollywood great, you know, guitar players. Anyway, we didn't share the like the fear of, you know, black empowerment mm-hmm. that a lot of people around us did. And we'd go hear Sonny Cherry and Brown and McGee play in a club, a folk club, and then invite them to get something to eat and go you know, hang with them. Only to find out that in the restaurant we went to that there was like real real entrenched hostility to blacks. What are you kids doing with those you know you know, I, I couldn't believe it. Like this barrage of hostility coming across the room, and and you know, you you you'd read about it, you heard about it, you were hearing speeches about it, you you understood that this happened in the South, but you didn't realize it was happening in Anaheim. Of course, Anaheim had its own you know chapter of the Klan in its in its beginning. So interesting time to grow up. So. You, I didn't really write about that stuff, but my friend Greg did. He wrote a song about Rosa Parks. They had a song about Rosa Parks. They had a song called Progress. It was just a, you know, a devout argument, you know, um, for human rights, for civil rights, and for equality and justice. And, you know, it's interesting that you could hear a Bob Dylan record in which these kind, this, the same that that level of songwriting was taking place, and they just went right at it, and they were what, 16, 17. So this is, you know, Steve and Greg and these other people you knew, they may have come to music before you, but it doesn't, I don't think they were having their own publishing deals. How did, how they, did you, you? No, they did. They, they did? did. They, really? We, all, <laughs> we all got taken under the wing sort of at the same time. 
We met a guy who had worked at Columbia Records, and we met him through another friend of ours, Pamela Poland, who introduced us to Billy James, and Billy James suddenly was working for Elektra, and he, was the, he opened their West Coast office. So we lived out in Orange County still, but, I mean, he opened this office. Uh, I think it was up on you know, Sunset Boulevard. It was a little office, mm-hmm. one, him and one secretary, but it was the West Coast office of Elektra Records, and so we learned all about Elektra. He turned them on to us. He turned Elektra, and they, they signed us all to Nina Music, and then and they signed Noonan to a, you know, a singing record deal. And then he, Billy started managing us as well as... I mean, then he stopped being the working at Elektra, but he just became everybody's manager, and... We spent a lot of, you know, several years in Laurel Canyon living on his, you know, couch. And well, before that, though, I think there there was this very brief, but it seems like impactful trip to New York where you met a lot of people who... You really have done some homework. I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to waste your time. No, I'm but very... I'm impressed because you're keeping the order of these things really straight, which <laughs> which I don't necessarily do when I, when I ramble on about... Uh, yeah, what happened right out of high school... Steve went to New York, and I was still in high school for a while, but he was a conscientious objector, and he got that status from his local draft board. And Greg did, too, as a matter of fact. And um, Steve had alternative service, and he, he worked in the Head Start program in the Lower East Side of New York. So, yeah, we drove to New York to see him. <laughs> we got in a car that was owned by a friend of ours' family that they needed delivered to Niagara Falls, I think. We drove straight from, uh, where did we start? Probably Long Beach or something, straight to New York City <laughs> on the Lower East Side in about three and a quarter days. It was wow. around the clock. I listened to the Clay Liston fight driving across the panhandle of Texas <laughs> at, you know, in the middle of the night. Right. And in New York, though, there was, it seems like, a number of people who, I don't know if you would say they were role models or influences, but just the amazing, talented people, right? Yeah. I would say, yeah. But, you know, there are freaks everywhere. What I noticed was that people were friendly in New York, whereas in Orange County they were decidedly not. Um, you know, if they were freaks, if, they're, if they had long hair, if they were, you know, then they were, we were in the minority. That group's in the mi- minority and people, I mean, in New York you'd stop and ask somebody directions and they would all, people gather around you and they'd argue about which way you should go to get up and downtown. So you, no, don't tell them to go that way or, get, you know, or how to take the subway. And I... You know, but it was middle of winter in New York. I was, I had no warm clothes. It was, we were like, we probably all looked like uh, waifs, you know. <laughs> and um, Steve lived in a third-story walk-up, and um, we lived on his floor. Once they got rid of the car in uh, Niagara Falls, they took off for Europe. And they found like a... I'm trying to remember how they they kept waiting about a, to hear about a boat or like a, some so the steamer. They like this was the kind of boho dream, you know, the bohemian dream of take a steamer to Europe to backpack around Europe, and they did this. They did it, and I was not of a mind to do that. I thought something could happen. I was, had this publishing deal, you know, and what I started doing was making demos with one of the producers at Electra, and Noonan was still in in. I think he started doing it too. Greg is split. He just went to Europe and his thing was, he was a writer and he was traveled and he kind of was living the kind of dream that, I mean, he was a huge influence on me and and he still is. But we'd had another friend that was in a group with Noonan in high school. Like the three guys named Steve and they were called the Stevedores. (laughs) But this guy, Steve Morris, 
went to Spain to study flamenco. And I never heard of him again. I don't think he ever... I think he must have stayed in Spain. And judging by my trips to Spain, I could see why he might right. not bother coming back. He just... Incredible culture, and, and if, especially if he started playing flamenco, because that's a world unto itself. I wanted to write songs, and, and we were, I was writing songs at a pretty a faster clip than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if you can talk a little bit about just returning from that time in New York and winding up in Laurel Canyon, which, you know, the generations that have followed, including mine, all we know about is there's this sort of mysterious, hallowed ground there where all of you guys were doing such great work, but also it sounds like having quite a bit of fun. Why did you end up there, and how do you think that period shaped you? I think the the reason Laurel Canyon drew so many people to it was it was green. You know, there were trees, and, and that was very much a big part of our awakening, you know, that we wanted to live someplace beautiful, make music, and be, be free to, you know, so, so, many, so many kinds of freedoms were in the offing, you know, like religious freedom and sexual freedom and chemical <laughs> freedom. You know, you, you, were, you wanted to be... Uh, we wound up in Little Canyon before... That's where Billy James and his wife Judy lived, and that they were sort of like our guides in, in so many ways. I mean, I met so many interesting people. I met Paul Rothschild, the producer who eventually produced The Doors, and Janis Joplin, and he turned me on to a recording of Mahagoni by Kurt Vile, and he was a producer for Elektra Records, and he, he lived nearby Billy and Judy, and he was a great purveyor of, like, really excellent weed. He had, like, <laughs> I say purveyor, I don't mean he was selling. I mean he was, like, a connoisseur. He was also a connoisseur of, like, the what he called the one-flush toilet. Because, I mean, it was, you, if the police knocked or if they started to enter your house, like, you needed a toilet that would flush everything, <laughs> seeds and all, in one flush. And because if, if, if you flushed it and some of these seeds came back up, you were busted, yeah. you know. Okay. That was what he would say anyway. He, <laughs> but he was a really bright guy. I think he'd been in the Army. I think he'd been busted for, for, for weed before in New York and had maybe done some time. He was sharp and he was, you know, careful. And at the same time, he was, you know, funny and, and you know, mad gleam in his eye. So the people that you met, I also met through Billy, I met David Rubenstein, who produced Thomas Hall. I met all kinds of musicians in Little Canyon. The people were, they, the thing is, and I've tried for a long time to figure out what it was. What I think was happening was that there was a kind of a breakdown of the hierarchy of record companies, where you were just as likely to become really good friends with a record producer or an engineer as you were another guitar player. And when you went to go in the studio, you were all like doing the same thing. There was a whole way in which, and it's always been that way. Now, I mean, yeah, I was, I used to kind of marvel and think, oh, wow, like the musicians are, they're just as much the creators of these records. There's no, that whole idea that you had to get a record company to tell you you were good enough and then pay a huge amount of money for you to record and for them to, and then they would decide which songs, you know, they would do. And they would, all that A&R stuff just sort of kind of evaporated in, in my time. It didn't go, completely go away. I mean, I made publishing demos, you know, and then also made a record on a, a, a lecture that didn't get released. Oh, wow. For a lot of reasons. It just got sidetracked. We, 
that around 1968, just as we were about, several of, of us were about to make records with Elector, we convinced them to give us a recording studio in the woods. <laughs> we convinced them to let us take a remote unit up to, the, to Northern California and get, and we were just really taking it from the, the band and Woodstock and Big Pink from that model and saying, this is how we'll, we'll get down to it. This is how we'll get down to brass tacks. Mm-hmm. And there's one really incredible girl <laughs> at the record company a woman who was more or less our age, but she said, like, she says, oh, and you want to, like, you know, you're trying to, like, escape the, 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 the clock. Have you ever done anything under the clock? I mean, we had done nothing, you know. And she said, is there some reason you're trying to escape this, uh, this discipline of uh, doing things on time and under, under the gun in the right. studio? But none of us had done anything, but we, we did think that that was the way to do it. And they let us do it and to their... Great regret. <laughs> later, you know, eventually, we didn't. We didn't really make it. What they did and what we did were kind of across purposes, in that they wanted us to make one record among the three of us. There were three writers and two or three guitar players and a bass player, and they were they sort of were confused. I think Electra had made a super group before. They were trying to put together mainly. I think Jack Holzman, the the president of Electra and the founder of Electra, wanted something to show for his investment. He wanted to do something that would show off his recording facility, which is that's backwards. That's putting the cart before the horse. It's like that. What we just wanted to make records, and so. We never got down to making. We there was confusion there that probably wouldn't have existed if we had, you know, like that strict recording schedule in the studio. But to his credit, you have the reason he thought that way is he had made several albums of songwriters. He had he had a thing called the Singer Songwriter Project, and he had three songwriters on the same album. He had the an urban blues record, the Blues Project, not the band, but the album yeah. on Electra, which was three like urban you know, blues players making, you know, three, like a record with the three of them on it. Then there was also Kern and Ray and Glover, who really were a group and played together. Not really a group, but they they traveled and played together and played a few things. Anyway, there there was confusion on that level. So it didn't turn into anything that they could release. But, I mean, I guess it was still a pretty revolutionary thing, even, you know, this was the very beginning of the idea that, a singer-songwriter would could be one in the same, right? I mean, it had not been around very long. And, well, I guess I wonder for you, if you had come along just a few years sooner and you would have had to probably, if you wanted to be in music, be one or the other, which would have been more likely? Would you have been a... Well, I think that there are always people who wrote songs and were in bands and sang. I mean, it wasn't an identity. It wasn't something that people, like, fastened onto us like that's... But what happened was that any every band had people in it that wrote the songs and they that if and bands wrote their own songs all of a sudden i think really from that from the time that i heard you know bob dylan it's only about two or three years before suddenly everybody had was doing their own songs they weren't as good as bob dylan's songs but <laughs> in a way they they did channel all the energy and all the growth that was happening on every level the growth was happening in 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 recording the sounds of things, ar- arranging the way, way records were played. And I might say that, I mean, in that way, 
the brilliance of Bob Dylan's writing was, was really outstripped by the brilliance of all these like British invasion, these bands. If you look at the, the record making from those bands, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. You, you were as likely to spend a week listening to Randy Newman record because it was so strange. It was so like, <laughs> what is he talking about? Oh yeah. my God, you know, like to have songs like Davy the Fat Boy yeah. or like You and Me Baby mixed in with songs like Political Science. It was, it was pretty heady. He was, he was like always like, Kind of apart from the whole, because he wasn't, he wasn't like some scruffy singer songwriter with a guitar. He was just a composer. Yeah, we had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. It was really interesting to to oh, chat yeah. with him. Yeah, if you read his biography, I mean, there's a it's not his biography. There's a biography about him yeah. written by some English people. You you probably have, I don't being, know if I had read that one. Oh, actually. it's really interesting. It's yeah, it's really good. <laughs> I asked him if he knew about it, and he claimed not to know about it. But, I mean, <laughs> I was going to send him a copy. But he, no, it's about, he, you know, he was in Scotch in a record company, Liberty. He was part of the writing staff there, and it was like he wrote in a cubicle, and he was, in, he was in there with, like, Leon Russell, whose name was Leon Bridges at the time, or the guy from Bread. I can't remember his name. Um, but they also had, the record companies had, you know, writers, and there was a, that building kind of model. I mean, the, they had people writing songs, and they would get them to the people that they had singing. You're right, the, the roles were sort of divided up. That time, Carol King, for instance, yes. just was a songwriter. Yeah. It wasn't until she, she became friends with James Taylor yeah. and realized that, oh, this, this is fun if you get to actually sing your own songs <laughs> for people. <laughs> well, uh your first studio album that the public got to hear, the first, I know you said there was this one that didn't get released before, but would have been the self-titled one in 72. And I wanted to just ask you if you can talk about, you know, just first as a reference point for folks, I guess Dr. My Eyes was the big hit off single off of that. I have done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding. You must help me if you can. After that, when the people say, you know, strike while the iron's hot, you've got all this attention on you at that moment. Instead, it looks like you took some time off. Maybe it wasn't off, or I was just thinking, it seems like maybe you were... Yeah. Not sure what to do with success. Is that fair to say? Mm. No, it wasn't that. I think that I just, I'm slow. I'm a slow <laughs> writer. And uh, that first album was produced by an engineer named Richard Sanford Orshoff. And I, I worked with him because I wanted to work with an engineer. And I kind of wanted to find my own way. So, but you have a backlog of uh, songs when you make your first album. You got a lot of songs to choose from. And some of the songs that were on the second album were among the songs I could choose from these days. Or uh, It took me a long time to write For Every Man. It's the first time it took me a, a long... That was my second album. Mm-hmm. My second album, as you say, like, it seemed like a long time to you, like, like a year and a half, was it? Right, so I guess, you know, who am I to say it's, it's a long time? It's not that long a yeah, time no. now, but yeah. at the time it seemed, yeah. <laughs> right. And And also you had people in the music business who's who had that, you're right, that sensibility of like, okay, now like, do another one just like that or do something, follow that with something, you know, in the same vein, build on that, you know. And first place, I couldn't have written another Doctor My Eyes. I didn't know how to repeat myself. <laughs> I wasn't interested in repeating myself. I just wanted to figure out the next thing. 
that I need to say. And for every man, it took me a long time to figure out uh, well, how to yeah. say it. But also, um, I was just going to say that between them, it seems like another pretty important thing that happened. I think it was between them that you and David Lindley started working together, right? He became a big part of everything after, right? Yeah. David Lindley, I had gotten in touch with him before the first album. and I, I was in, in England touring. Uh, I was opening for Laura Nero. And I looked him up, and I tried to book a session with him. And the guy who was going to produce the record at the time, Denny Cordell, didn't show up. That was the moment in which he sort of... Well, to tell you the truth, the... Just so you understand that the the whole feeling there at at Asylum and with David Geffen was like, take your time. Mm-hmm. My before my first album, there was also like you know like you're just you're you're growing. These are great songs, but you like you can take some time. And and uh, he knew I was trying to trying to sing better. I wanted to work on my singing, and I and he could tell because I wouldn't just sign up with any of the producers. He he suggested that I wanted to kind of develop, you know. So fortunately, I had met Russ Kunkel, and because of Russ Kunkel and I threw, through him, Lee Sklar and Craig Durge, I wound up with a really cool band playing on that first album. And I, I, they didn't play on everything, but they played on about half the songs, and about half the songs were, were very acoustic. Meanwhile, be, right before that, I had been in England because I was touring with Laura Nero, and I tried to do this session. And as I say, I was going to have this producer, Denny Cordell, and, and he, the deal was he would produce my record if it was going to be an asylum, and if Geffen didn't start Asylum Records, then he would get me on Shelter. And I was pretty sure Geffen, I was going to start a record company, but it didn't matter. But I wanted to work with Denny, and I liked Denny a lot. And when he found out that Geffen was going to start a record label, he just reneged. He just like completely disappeared. And the day I found that out was the day he didn't show up at the studio oh for a session that I had booked. Oh my God. And I'd done a couple of sessions w- with him, I'd, but he, and he had guys, he had like Matthew Fisher from Procol Harum playing and uh, Jim Keltner and those guys were over there, Keltner and the guys in Mad Dogs and Englishmen were over there in England playing with Joe Cocker. And again, those, those I'd love to get the hold of those sessions because when I met Albert Lee, who wound up playing on, uh, he was great, and he wound up playing on, on the first record. So, you know, I just found somebody else to play the parts that David Lindley had made up for Song for Adam and did them with, because Lindley wasn't back in the States. And so as we started the second album, oh yeah, I needed to tour off that first album, and yeah. I started putting together a band, and the band wasn't as good as David and I were by ourselves. Yeah. It just wasn't. Yeah. Maybe it's my first band. It was like my first time trying to play with a band. So not only when I say they weren't as good, I mean I wasn't as good with a band because I just played acoustic guitar and there weren't even any decent ways of amplifying acoustic guitars in those days if you were going to play with drums. Well, you always also had people coming in and out of the picture, right? So with that second album, For Every Man, the title song, it was, first of all, I believe, kind of a response to Crosby's own song, but then he's on there with you, you'll be on other people's. It's kind of amazing. You don't see that these days where where there is a sense of let's just do something together because we believe in it. The 
people do collaborate, but they're but it's arranged, you know, by their publishers a lot of times, or if they they just call each other up, I suppose. I met these little kids at a grammar school not long ago, and they didn't know who I was. I mean, I was just some somebody they were being told was a musician, yeah. and he's come here to talk to someone. Like and they said, "Well, uh, great, you make records." And I go, "Who are your features? Who are my features?" And I thought, <laughs> you know, and. And I realized that that's like a big, a big aspect of music, who people collaborate with and who can, you know, they can be heard on. I heard a great J. Cole record I, I really liked, and I asked my son about it. He said, that's not, he didn't do that. That's this other band. And I realized he was the feature on this particular recording. And it was better with him on it than the, their version without him. So they had redone it with all that kind of clever. It's the same thing, I think. Yeah. It's the same thing, but you're right in that in those days that nobody nobody paid each other to be on the records. I mean, everybody you know, invite somebody to come sing with you it wasn't like uh, <laughs> nobody paid anybody, and everybody wanted to play together, and they liked. I got to say, um, like on that second record, Elton John played on that record, right? And he couldn't he couldn't play because his visa he wasn't on or here on a visa, and so he couldn't say couldn't say it was Elton John. We had to make an uh, like a nom de plume for him on Redneck Friend. You know, yeah. we, we said it was piano by Rockaday Johnny <laughs> or Rockaday John. I don't know. Uh, and that was a reference to Dylan's. We're talking World War Three blues, you know. <laughs> well, so I want to read you back something you said about the third album, which I think is kind of interesting. Quote. The intimate, confessional, and introspective song really had its time. The middle of the 70s, the first half. But then you got a lot of really bad examples of it. So it always interests me to hear from people who liked Late for the Sky because those songs, at least six out of the eight, were really the culmination of a period I just don't feel anymore. <laughs> Why? I mean, so what were you feeling? When did I say that? <laughs> I, I can pull the year in a moment. I'll pull it up. But uh -huh. I, I wrote down the quote because, I mean, yeah. what were you feeling at the time? Because it is a pretty... Um, it's hard to, hard to, I'd be hard-pressed to say what I was yeah. doing. Tell me when it was. And <laughs> well, it's it, 74, and it's it's just like each track from from the title track to For a Dancer, where we're talking about, I guess, what happens when we die. I mean, these are some pretty dark Oh, I know when Late for the Sky was, but when, when was that quote from? Oh. When you were saying, I wasn't feeling that that way anymore. I mean, I I think it was no at, doubt, at but, this point, it, we had come out of the probably early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you really know. They don't seem like long periods of time now between the seventies <laughs> and the eighties, but there, it was it was a long time. You basically uh, by the eighties, I was interested in arranging and uh, trying to write for a band. So, "Lay for the Sky," those songs were pretty much written by myself, and you know, and then I spent I spent some time learning to play them with a band, and by say some time, I mean like a month. Yeah, yeah. I remember getting an advance from the record company to pay them to rehearse the band in order to go in and make a record. And now nobody even rehearses. Who, who rehearses? <laughs> you just go in there and you you collaborate. You right. you, you you make stuff up. But um, and that happened right away too. So yeah, by by a few years later, I was in in uh, a recording situation with a lot of the musicians I'd played with on my first album, 
and second album. And it was, I wanted it very much to be like a band. And it, I, I was really surprised then. Uh, that record was called um, Hold Out, I guess. And uh, I was surprised, like nobody really thought of it as like, they didn't treat it like a band. It was like my next album. I realized, well, I might as well have used a lot of different musicians. But I've, I've done it both ways. I've, like on Late for the Sky, I used the same five musicians. And if I played piano, then Jay Winding would play organ. And if I played guitar, then he would play piano. So you'd either have songs that had, you know, piano and guitar. And then the other, the other wonderful variable was the David Lindley, whether he would play violin, lap steel, or electric guitar. You had a joking thing I'd read where you called it something with like using the David Lindley's because like in plural because he the could Lindley do, brothers, the Lindley brothers, right? Yeah, <laughs> he could do so many different. Things. Yeah, yeah. We nicknamed him the Lindley brothers because he could play so many different ways, and. So I'd done it that way, but then also like following that on the album before and after that, I had done it with calling every great musician I heard about, everybody I heard about that was great. And sometimes I heard about it from other artists or other producers. You know, they're like, you know, I'd, I'm and some of these people I only played with once. It just was a way of like adding a dimension and and learning about those players. Well, a related thing in terms of just relationships leading to other relationships I, I wondered if it might spring from Springsteen who you've talked about in a lot of things as somebody who you hold in the highest regard I know he inducted you when you were going into the I think it was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just on the Pretender album number four that's produced by John Landau who was always closely associated with him was that because you were striving to do something similar to the way that he was doing it no uh, I had met John Landau before The Pretender, but I mean, it was after the For Every Man, and I think, or maybe while I was still writing the songs for Late for the Sky. Mm-hmm. And he was the first guy I ever met that would listen to me criticize my own records and would listen to it. <laughs> before that, people would say, oh, stop beating yourself up. And I go, oh, wait, I'm not beating myself up. What are you talking about? I'm trying to tell you what I want to be better. And I didn't have anybody in my life that could do that. There was nobody, literally nobody. Like, they were not Geffen, not... Really, like, he was the first guy that took me seriously. And I'd met Bruce at that point, but I wasn't trying to do what he did, you know. Like, I was just trying to go on finding my way. And um, John was around a lot when we were producing Warren Zevon's first album. Yeah. And I say around a lot. He, he came to the studio a bunch of times, and he would, you know, talk to me about my choices as a producer. So it was like two producers talking about and he would say... Oh, this is really good. Like, well, so what else are you going? What are you going to do? I said, Well, I'm kind of done. I don't have any more money. And he said, <laughs> Well, you should go back to the record company and get the money. This is really good. <laughs> I said, No, he only. It was really hard enough to get this much money. <laughs> like Geffen didn't want to give me the money to make this record in the first place. He accused me of like trying to be a hero to my friends. And I said, David, this guy is brilliant. You don't hear it? What's really? <laughs> he said, It's going to make me money. And I said, what are you being like that all of a sudden? <laughs> Was I ever going to make you money? Right. And he'd say, well, you are making me money. I said, well, okay, so, yeah, he's going to make you money. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not <laughs> what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, the songs. And he would say, okay, make the record, but, you know, you, you have a budget of $70,000. And I'm like, okay, great, we'll do it. <laughs> so $70,000, we went through it, and there was some more stuff that we wanted to do and do better. And I remember recording... Um, with a couple of different drummers. But anyway, Landau said, ah, just, go, just go tell him you need more money. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of advice was, um, 
I, I appreciate it. And with the record I made right after that, The Pretender, mm-hmm. and also Giffen wasn't around that much longer after that. He went off and quit. He went down from the movie business for a while and then he came back and formed a record label. But Was that tough to have a... I mean, people... Without it all harping on this, I just think it, it's important context to, to remind people that, you know, The Pretender, for a lot of people, it's one of their favorites of your work, but it came out of a, a very painful period for you. Well, yeah. And I mean, did that shape, was it always going to be sort of a mournful album or was that changed by what happened mm-hmm. while it was being made? Mm, that's a good question. The songs I didn't really I didn't really start any new songs. I I rewrote a couple. I finished uh a couple after my wife's death. And there was a period of like we started that record. I went back to back from producing Wallen's Yvonne's album to making The Pretender. And um uh, Really, like, finished his on Friday and started mine on Monday, that kind of thing. And and um, and when my wife took her life, it was um, yeah, I stopped for a, quite a while, like several months. But it became apparent to me that I just really needed to go back to work, and that was the only thing that was going to make help me make sense out of uh, my my life, my my new life, my, I was a single parent, and um, so I spent some time, you know, and then took some time, you know, off, and then went back to work, and John was the producer of that record from during that time, and uh, he was great to be, uh, he was a really incredible friend, and incredibly, like I say, he was one of the first people I'd ever met I could talk to about a lot of things, about that, about that for sure and and also about you know how to get what you want in the studio how to how to get people to play what you want and what i learned from him musically was pretty fundamental pretty it was kind of like he'd be start he'd be listening to to the, a track and he'd look like a boxer he'd look like <laughs> you know he'd start like he'd make these gestures with his arms and his hands like this kind of way in which he wanted to, what he wanted to hear. And you could liken it to the kind of punch and the kind of power that... You, and he'd say, you mind, you mind if I talk to the piano player? And I'd go, 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 go ahead. Because I'd made three records by myself, you know, being in charge. And so he was... We were, you know, gingerly kind of like, you know... But it was hard, hard to have another person in, 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 in a position of, you know you know, behind the wheel. So he'd say, well, let me go talk to me. He'd go, great, oh yeah. <laughs> and he'd come back and this guy would start playing incredible stuff. And I would go, wow, how'd you get him to do that? And I go, I never used to ask anybody specifically for anything because I didn't know what to ask. I didn't, know, I didn't, you know, I mean, I had some things like that. I usually gleaned from other musicians. Like if you think, if you look at the song, The Fuse, that's from that same record, right? Doug Haywood has been, he wasn't the bass player on that. By the time I recorded it, I tried to record it before, and this, this really, sig- this very power, I thought really strong musical movement, which was hit the bass going, while the big chords were happening over it. 
Doug made that up, you know. And that became part of the song. I mean, it's the way I wrote. I, I just used what people did, you know, and I got people who, to play stuff that I liked. Sometimes you record it multiple times before somebody, you know, found that key or that, that way forward. I think I probably recorded on the For Every Man record, I think I recorded Lindley solo like seven times or something. Tell me finally said, why don't we play an acoustic? And he did that, and then suddenly that was the, and the, his, the way he was playing was just it. It was great, emotional. And on the other hand, like the solo he played on, David Lindley played on Late for the Sky, he also had to play that solo about, I don't know, how many times? Like 50, 100? I don't know. He finally, like, I started was listening to one of his solos, and I sort of sent him back out. He said, I think you should listen to that one again. And that's the one that's on there. Wow. <laughs> I think he looked at me like, I like that one. <laughs> like, don't, don't make me <laughs> don't go back it, out. Yeah. And how, who knows how many brilliant things he had played before then. I would lose my way. I would lose my way. But again, I just wanted to say this thing about yeah, Landau sure. is that he taught me something about arranging that became a fire. It became like my interest because of the way in which he was actually able to shape the way people played. And I, I got, on that record, I got to play with Jim Gordon. I got to play with, with uh, Chuck Rainey. I got to play with Jeff Procaro. I got to play with Fred Tackett. These are all guys that, that John wanted to play with. I really learned more than that. I learned how to, how to call people for what they might play on your record. And, 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 uh, and he wanted to play, he wanted to work with uh, Kunkel and Sklar. And I was already working with them, but he, he didn't want to just work with them. He wanted to call. He was, here he was making a record in L.A., and he, he'd never made a record in L.A., and he was calling all these guys because he read, he read album note, covers, you know. At the same time, he would run into people that he had, in the parking lot of a studio that he had savaged in print. <laughs> but I'd say, oh, hey, this is, this is my friend John Landau, and the person's eyes would narrow, and he'd look at him like, because, he, and John would be like... Meeting somebody that he had like disparaged their work, you right. know, and later and and really very soon yeah. I, during that record wrote a farewell to rock criticism. He said he just quit. He just quit writing criticism because he was making records. Right. And I've always sort of suspected that if you, that would be a good way to get some critics to just like you know shut up or put up. It's just like wait well, here. I mean, in fact, I heard a story about. Pauline Kael and Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty, like, reading a criticism that she wrote about one of his films, and he offered to give it to fund a movie for it. Like, you, you make one. Yeah, Let's see what you do. Yeah. And she wouldn't do it, of course. Or she couldn't. Or she didn't. Maybe that's just the... Maybe that's like the Beatles telling the, the hecklers in the back of the room, come on down here and fight us on stage. Sure. Like, like it's, it's, it's not exactly a fair <laughs> challenge, but... I'll just note before moving on that with The Pretender, you had a top 25 single with Here Come Those Tears Again, which was written by your, or co-written, I believe, right, by your yeah. uh, late wife's mother. Here come those tears again Just when I was getting over you Just when I was gonna make it through another night Without missing you I might just be strong enough after all. And then also the, of course, the title track, the closing track, which, you know, is, I think, one of the songs that's most closely associated with you. And it always begs the, the question as I as I read all the, went and read back all the profiles and interviews and things I could find, who is the pretender? Well, the veterans dream of the 
You know, I, I got to tell you that the it's a kind of a, a metaphor. It's a kind of way of talking about how people fake it. I mean, it's it's me. It's everybody. But it's not a particular. I mean, it's about deciding to go along with everything in spite of the fact that it's not going where you you you, you already know it's not going where you think it should go, and that has to do with the culmination of the 60s idealism and the but it also I, I I met a guy that was I had a guy stand at my house and we met him we met on a on a film crew but he was stay, he'd come stay at my house and he'd go hitchhiking one time he came back with a guy that had given him a ride okay and this guy was I mean in the, it, it turns out later he's, he was schizophrenic and he was, he was having a really hard time with reality and at one point Paul was saying, look, I, you know, I, I've been up for days. I can't get him to go to sleep. And he's like, he's not. A guy who kept disappearing, like, from our house and going, you know, you'd go down the alley and I, there'd be a crowd around one of the houses. Like, the, most people got through the houses. It was in Heckle Park. It was an alley. Mm-hmm. But, and I walked up to this house and these people looked at me like, oh, he's one of these hippies. Like, do you know the guy that's in this house? And the guy was in there in their kitchen, you know, just pretending like he's supposed to be there. He's just sitting in their kitchen having a cigarette, acting like nothing's wrong, like nothing's out of the ordinary. And these people were like, what are we... And these uh, Hispanic families saying, we're going to jump on this guy if he makes... I mean, but what is he doing there? Like, yeah. we can't... They couldn't get him to... We got him. We got him out of there. But he was pretending to be down with whatever. Like, he was just going along with whatever any, anybody else. So we got him to go, and we, we, took him, we took him down to the hospital downtown, and they wouldn't give him back. And we said, well, we said, wait a minute, we didn't want to, we weren't trying to commit him, right. give him back. And, and the guy said, oh, for Christ's sake, can't you see he's out of his mind? You know, he was really irritable. It was like six in the morning, right. and the guy, the doctor on charge says, like, look, you know, we asked him what day it was, and he said the 4th of July. He said, where are you? And he said, you know, he was in Russia, and like, who was the first president? And, he, and the same, same, same goofy answer. And I asked him later, why did you give those answers? He says, well, I, I knew that those are the answers that I would have to get right in order to get out. Right. And he had this sort of reverse. But he was, so maybe that influenced me. The whole idea of like pretend, faking reality yeah. is what, that's the best answer I can give oh, you. Great. You know, it's, it's like, a, it's a character that if I, if I got, a straight job, you know, and I'd be pretending. <laughs> like I, would, I mean, I was able to, uh, or if I, if I gave up on the ideals that I, that I really, that formed my, you know, my, yeah. my thinking when I was young, I still have those ideals. I believe in human rights. I believe in self-determination. I believe in, you know, preserving the natural world and, and, and trying to find a, a way past this. And, I mean, I, if you told me then that things were going to get suddenly sort of just take a turn for the worse and get worse, even worse than they were in the, you know, during the Vietnam War, I wouldn't have believed you. But so the pretender, maybe that's another, uh, it started taking me longer and longer to make records starting with uh, 
the second one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not uncommon. I mean, as you say, you start out with a, a stockpile of, uh, of songs for the first one. So Yeah, I guess what's funny is that some of my earlier songs are the most well-known songs that these days or yeah. Doctor My Eyes. Yeah. I didn't think that much of Dr. Mars, but I thought it was, you have to have, there it was obvious that you had to have some sort of up-tempo short song, a short up-tempo song right. to get on the radio. And um, and it was, um, of course, it was because of David Crosby and Graham Nash that it got played at all. That's, that's I mean, if they were the biggest band in America, and suddenly there was this kid that had them on their his solo record, and that was that's back when DJs could take an interest right. in a record right. and just play it. Let's see what this sounds like, because who is this kid? Well, I'm looking right now at an album that I believe was your best-selling one ever, and that is Running on Empty, went seven times platinum, has been called one of the most revolutionary live albums ever made. What was most fascinating to me to, to learn in the course of this was I saw a quote. You said, I always thought that running on empty was going to be a momentary diversion yeah. while I bought myself more time for the next studio album. Running on empty was an idea and it was a digression, close quote. So people who don't know the the actual backstory of this, you, you're you a guy who's out touring, right? And you're literally, it's it's a, it's what they call a concept album, but you're recording it while touring so if you're in a hotel or you're on a bus or whatever is that correct how that no that one had ever done that and here's how it happened well cassette players were getting better and better and you could get a, a nagamichi cassette player and they sounded incredible but i thought you could just start just start recording everything but i wanted to record conversations backstage i wanted to record some of the hilarious stuff that people said out there <laughs> we did a little bit of that but we just post watergate and the band put a stop to that almost right away. Like, turn that off, you know. <laughs> then no one wanted to be quoted saying some of the stuff that they say right. or situations that they're describing. So, But it was going to be a double album. It was going to be a live album. It was going to have a bunch of songs. By, by the time I've made three albums, uh, there's already songs that I want to re-record and redeem myself and make better, make better versions of. And then there are a bunch of new songs. So I, I thought, I'll, I'll, make, I'll mix it up and I'll make a double album and it'll be... There would be like a jive-ass promotion man, you know, from some region, regional, you know, promotion guy like who comes on with, you know, with a bunch of flattery and puffery and like and just jive-ass stuff. And it was going to be characters and, and maybe it was going to be like some of like Zappa's records. It would be like, you know, so it would. I wanted to get a portrait. I wanted to show people what it was like out there. I loved it. I love touring. I always I've always have. And, and um, no one had ever made a record that way and also no one had ever simply recorded everything i mean my band played different all the time so there were nights that happened that where you go like wow this is so much better than the record or this is and then it's better than anything that's ever happened since i mean why don't like let's put that out but it wasn't recorded well enough. so i i, I told peter asher i was going to record this on cassette <laughs> he said oh no look <laughs> no at least take a two track 
If you if you convince that you can get these performances just running them off the board and recorded from the board, at least record them on a on a Revox or a you know Studer two track. And so as soon as I started researching that, the the the, the touring company that I toured with, Shoko, said, "Well, we got a twenty four track." I said, "Just you mean just the machine? Just take a twenty four track machine?" I said, "Well, you you could do that. You could record." And I talked to my engineer, Greg Ladani, who had mixed The Pretender and who could, I, I, as far as I can say, could do anything. If he said I could do it, I could do it. I said, can I do that? And he said, well, the way we'd have to do that is you won't be able to listen back. You won't have a truck. You won't have a recording truck or a studio playback capability, but you will have the ability to get it recorded because we'll have a guy in a room back there with the machine that'll be looking at the meters. And he will also be able to listen to one track at a time with headphones because you could just plug a headphone jack into each of these individual modules and see if it was distorted or if it was, if it was a sound you liked. So we hired guys to do this. And they would set up this machine in a, in a, in a, in a room. And we were playing big places, like playing, you know, like arenas and stuff. And every now and then Ladani would like just bolt back to the, you know, where this room, I mean, he was, he was mixing the house. Yeah. And he, like, for instance, he'd noticed that Russell was not playing the kick as strongly as he was on the song before, because it was a ballad thing. He was playing it quieter. And he, he had to, like, turn it up a little bit in the, in the auditorium. And he'd call the guy on the, on the board uh, back in the room and say, what, do you, what kind of level do you have on the kick drum? And he'd say, you got, like, plus three? And he says, yeah, we got plus three. And just Lidani would, like, in, intuitively not believe it. He'd go, mm. And you run back there and you look at it and said, no, that's not plus three. That's plus three. And you like, you turn up the gain. Because then, cause the, you know, the guy did have to make sure that the, that the he by hand turned the volume of every, there was no board. I'm telling you, there's no board. It was like. I'm looking at my sound guy and he's. <laughs> nobody's done it. And I probably know, but no one's done it this way since. No. Because <laughs> you should have at least taken a board out there. But right. we were just two guys with a studer and, a, and they were in the locker room at a basketball arena, you know. And we got it recorded that way. But the the first thing that happened was we were we started doing shows, and one day we were, and we and we did have like a we went to a studio to listen what we got, and a couple of things we made some adjustments. Like we said, like that okay, that I hate that piano. Can we use this other piano? And they said no, the other piano has been sent back. What do you mean? Well, we just we, they started shedding the stuff we didn't need, so they they sent my piano back and we literally had to get a, a, a CHP officer to turn to flex to chase down the truck and turn it around because <laughs> there were no CBs and we got anyway those kinds of adjustments were being made right at the beginning yeah and the first thing that Russell said when he heard it, he said you know these new songs are great you should just make a just make an album of new songs I said, you mean like a live album of songs no one's ever heard before because before that people always made live albums of their best-known material. It was always kind of like a best-of with one, with one or two songs that would distinguish that album from the others. Mm-hmm. And it was just... That's, and they, they were always recorded over one or two nights in a location, New York or Los Angeles. So, yeah, no one had ever done that. And, and when I went back years later, to I was going to remix it for 7.1, Surround... And I was used to looking, I mean, by that time, we were 
make multiple, lots of different takes of every, like, there were only one or two takes of each of these songs, like the ones that were recorded in the bus. There's like two takes, three wow. takes. Amazing. As successful as Running on Empty was, the one that came after, number six, Holdout, I think is the only one that went, and, and the, the first one to go to number one, right, as an album. I don't, did it? Yeah. And oh. that there were some, <laughs> some big hits there, Boulevard, That Girl Could Sing. Can you tell when you put something out, do you have a, a gut feeling about how well it's going to, like, was, did that surprise you? I didn't think you? it did that well. I, I, I'm kind of surprised that you say. <laughs> and I'm, when, if, now that you mention it, well, I suppose maybe it didn't do as well as the album before, and so therefore it was not a success. It didn't do as well as the uh, as running on empty. So, well, it started out certainly big, and and I think though to seven times platinum, I, I guess just uh, running on empty had a longer life. But it's a it's an interesting thing. I mean, the the main thing though is, do you have a your sense? Do you, do you feel that you have the pulse of what people will respond to, or do you just when you put it out there, uh, mm. album that's done great versus an album that didn't? You know, how how well can you tell the difference beforehand? I think I was pretty insulated at that point yeah. in time. But, but not only from the success of Running an Empty, but I had a band, I had a great band, and everybody was ready to do whatever we were going to do next, and I kind of dominated their schedules, and I could take as long as I needed to take to make the record. But I don't think that I really had the kind of... There was no one person that I had this a kind of rapport with that, that I could help to, you know, that I could talk to. Unfortunately, all of them were people I could talk to, <laughs> but they were all didn't, none of them agreed. Right. <laughs> so I, I wound up being like a traffic a conductor of, you know, like, I, like okay, let's, let's just try Craig's idea. We'll try Danny, you know, or, you know, Lee, what do you think? You know, I mean, I would just find myself like asking too many people right. what, they, what they liked and what they wanted to do. And even, now that's you know that's that can that can still undo me. I can still like leave it up to somebody or like like do what everybody else wants to do, and wait till they do something great for me to go. Yeah, that's it. You know, that's it's 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 a kind of a failing of mine. And I don't because I don't go in there knowing what I want. I go in there to find out what I want. And uh, sometimes I'll like something a lot for a long time before I suddenly realize what's wrong with it. And I don't always suddenly realize. Maybe I'll eventually just go. And see, like I to give an example, like like that album had a song, a Disco Apocalypse, on it. And that was supposed to be an ironic title. It was supposed to be an ironic. It was supposed to be like a remark about disco and about the way popular music was going. It was supposed to be, and I utterly failed it pulling that off because <laughs> I got swept up in trying to play it like it was disco. So it just came off to people who were like, who are not ironic people <laughs> that you were just jumping on a bandwagon. Right. If I had done this on the way it started, which was more like, boom, 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 boom. it was like this Lindley distorted guitar figure. It could have been, could have been played like rock and it would have been, more of a remark about disco and more a refutation. By that time, by the way, people were, you know, like people uh, blazing. that had like slogans, disco sucks. Fact is that I loved Disco Inferno. I remembered reading that. I'm thinking like, yeah. I want to, that's good. Yeah. Come on. 
And but not all disco was good, of course, and not and not all anything is good. Right, right. So, so I kind of lost my way on that. And when 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 the smoke cleared, I'd written too many bridges. I just wrote too much. I kept going. I kept trying to, tr- and I and I and, you know I just sort of kept heading into the woods, trying to make this song something that uh, I liked. And in the end. Uh, I mean, I've never really rehabilitated that song. There are people who have suggested it. I could do it. <laughs> there are other things wrong with it. There are other things I would I would rewrite if I were. I mean, you could say that I'm not fun, I'm not done with it, <laughs> but, but it's going to be a long time uh, if I ever get back to it. You know. And by this point, though, you were now becoming much more political, right? More a- active, active, and was it the Reagan era that made you that way? Yeah, I, it was absolutely Reagan, Reagan sort of leading everybody back to this sort of Nixonian, straight-laced, you know, conservative, corny-ass fucking world that, mm-hmm. that was like, you know, I know he's popular, but I got to say I really disagree with so much of what he did. Yeah. And well, and uh, somebody last night yeah. you know, started yeah. to like, Reagan, I thought, let's talk about it. You know, but I, I, I did think that in Lawyers in Love, I was trying to satirize the, the Reagan description of who we are as a country. Well, um, lives in the balance is around Contra, right? I mean, that's uh, that's one of the things. That was the next thing, yeah. yeah. Just that he, um, I always saw him as a paid spokesman for big business. He, and he, he represented. You know, he was the host of uh, the GE, right? Or he was the G. He 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 worked for GE and he worked for Borax. Yeah. Uh, Death Valley Days. He was kind of a B actor. He's not very good. No. <laughs> uh, and and not, not believable. And I didn't. I used to think, no way was he even going to be. No, he he's not going to become governor of California. And then he's governor of California. No way can he become the pre. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's a matter of realizing that, and you don't. I realize that I mean that not everybody sees it the way I see it, and 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 the problem is worse than you think. Yeah, and it's still that way now. I mean, we we have Trump as a president, yeah. and so you, I'm pretty much out of step with uh, a great many of my countrymen, and and uh, yeah, but I think at the you're same time in step with reality, which is nice to see. I mean, this is not you know, it's a- hard to talk about. I mean, it's tar- hard to get it to stick in a song. It's hard to, like, get a criticism of society to be clear enough or to be emotional enough or to be, you know, it, it's not easy. And so I've, and I've done, so I've done it to greater or lesser effect. You know, once or, one or two of my songs, I think, is, have, like, lives in the balance have worked, especially in the long run it's worked because the more people found out, the more people got the song. Yeah. And the more I stopped... The, the, the more I ceased trying to introduce it, the, I stopped trying to give an introduction to that song a long time ago, except maybe to say, you know, my son asked me to start singing this again. But, I mean, there was a time when people really, they really were worried. I think my audience was worried that I'd gone down a rabbit hole, political. Just being too political. Yeah, yeah. And I and I would have to say something from the stage like, oh, I, I have a feeling I'm um, making... Some of you kind of uncomfortable by what I'm saying, but on the other hand, I kind of think it's important that I do, you know, by, and suggest that well, this is something that needs to be talked about. Or somebody, some critic called it, it's more like more of a speech than a song. And I thought, well, oh, okay, okay, but it's a speech I need to make. And so it's not about having a, a pulpit, you know, it's about having a, a voice as a citizen. 
That's all. It just leads me to, to, to the one last pre-5B thing that I've got to say. What, what you've just said is so interesting because in between the sixth and seventh albums was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which you did somebody's baby for, which reached number seven on the charts, your, your highest charting single. thing that I got a huge kick out of was you said it was hard to write a song about so little little. (laughs) (laughs) close quote so it's interesting because as you as a person had more to say it's still hard yeah yeah you know I was I got I was thinking about just this morning the phrase I thought there's got to be some way of writing a rock song called less said the better (laughs) (laughs) okay so this leads us to something that I was really honored to get to talk to you about last night and along with some other people who were involved with this project. It's a documentary called 5B, and it's all about the first AIDS unit of a hospital in America, which opened in San Francisco back in 1983. And what's interesting here is you came to write with two others the end credit song after initially begging off having anything to do with it, right? So Paul Haggis is one of the co-directors. I guess you know him, and he reached out? Yeah. I know him because of his work in Haiti. Ah. Uh, he, he had a group called um, Artists for Peace and Justice, which I think began as a kind of like, just sort of like a group that met and talked politics in his living room. But after the earthquake in 2010, they started raising money. I guess they'd worked in Haiti. I guess film companies go there and use it, you know, to... But they, they, maybe because they were movie makers and movie stars and you know, the people that, they were able to get stuff done. They, they built a school in short order, about a year. Today, that school, 2,600 of the poorest children in the Western Hemisphere go to that school for free. It's an incredible achievement. And it was done in conjunction with a, with a priest down there named Father Rick Frechette. And it was, a, I had a, uh, so I, I, I have a, uh, a friendship with him that's based on our having worked, uh, gone there and visited that, that place a number of times. It was part of his fundraising for the school. And when he called in about this, um, I was delighted because uh, I was really, you know, happy to be asked. But, I, but when, once I saw the film, I thought, I, I don't think I don't know that if I would. I mean, it's I've turned down offers like that so many times because of just not wanting to. Just trying to reduce expectations. I don't know what I can come up with. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like I I wrote I've written songs for movies. I wrote a song for the film I'll Do Anything. Yeah. Only because they said. They've asked, they've had like three or four people have tried and they haven't found a song that they like. And if you, Geffen literally said like, you, you got nothing to lose. You can like, if you don't, if you don't come up with something that works, then, you know, there's not going to be, no one's going to be all, you're not going to upset anybody. Right. It's, you know, just give it a shot. You know, right. and I wound up writing something that, that, that right, right after that, they, in that movie, they, they just took all the music out. They took out the Prince song. They took out the they took every song. They took out Sinead O'Connor. They, 
they had all this great, but because they realized that they they couldn't pull it off as a musical, so I was I just got I got my song back. I mean, so I can tell you the songs that I've written for films, and I like them all for me. Like, I, but they're they're songs I wouldn't have written if they hadn't asked me to write a song for a film. And there's a much about me as as any other thing I write. Like I'll I'll do anything, or the song on my last record um, called Here, uh-huh. which was written for a movie called Shrink. Yeah, and. It took a long time. That took a long time. But knowing that I'm really slow and knowing that I might not... And, and I was really moved by the film. I just thought, oh, how do I, yeah. how do I talk about this? What do I say? Right. And, and it's very hard to write a song for the end credits of a movie because you can't just tell the story. Mm-hmm. You can't just, you know, you, you can't, it would be redundant to start recounting what happens in the movie. So I I'd sort of said, no, I didn't think I could. I don't have the time, mm-hmm. and um, I'm making a record, and I'm, which I'm still making that record. <laughs> but this got written because he approached Leslie Mendelson, who he, he had told me about Leslie, and she and Steve McEwen got a good start on this song. And I, I, I say that my favorite stuff is the lines that they've written. You know, I did something that I think is I'm very I'm proud of. I'm not going to talk to you about which which lines are mine or whatever, but I mean I, in in a way I I dialed in something that I'm I'm really happy with. It was very much about what I'm going through in my own life. If I did anything, it was to really well, it was it, it it's to assert that sort of language that that makes this about everybody. Mm-hmm. It, this is a this is a very personal thing to talk about because it's called a human touch. It could be about. It, you, well, it could it, be about it, nothing to, be any to do with good, it. It's got to be. It's got to be about more than the specific story that's in the movie. Right. But it's got to be all about that story. It's got to yes. be the point. And 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 when I saw the film again last night, I hadn't really watched the whole thing and since we had had worked on it and written. I see why. I see why. Why he got right to it. Mm-hmm. But he's a, he's that kind of a writer. He goes right to it. And you've said that you haven't really had much experience with that sort of collaboration of writing line by line going through a song with other writers, right? That's true. No, I'd, I'd never really done that where you, you get together with a writer or two other writers and sit down at a piano for an hour. You literally book this room for like an hour and a half or something, and and I'd never met them. Mm-hmm. When I walked in, I was looking around <laughs> for like, you know, who, who might Leslie be? And then she came up and beautiful, what a beautiful woman she is she came with this big smile and a big hug you know and then she's just so genuine and then introduced me to her friend Steve and we just went in there and sort of and he's quite an old hand you know like he's really written with all these and because he writes songs that are not that he's not going to sing I feel that I was I don't have that kind of experience mostly everything I do is something I'm going to and I, it was proposed to do it as a as a duet too mm-hmm. well, we worked on the chorus right away and then and then for a while, I spent the kind of time I'm used to spending on a song, grappling with one or two lines that were in the song when I got there that I, I thought should be changed. And, you know, like I said, I don't know what should, should be there. I don't know what should be there, but I thought I just had a little, a little problem with, you know, I'm, I, I, like, I cross-examine myself so relentlessly when I'm writing a song. That's why it takes so long, I think. Well, what do you... Why are you saying that? What do you mean? What do you think you mean by that? Well, yeah, that's true, but it just is equally true as the opposite. Like, why? Why are you gonna like? How are you gonna make this actually 
stick, you know, make it something that 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 people take into their their own psyche and their their and 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 grab a hold of. This song had to be about everybody's love, everybody's relationship, the thing that you hope you will find that you may have, you know. And I'm I'm so moved by this song because also it's it's Leslie singing to me. I think it's like this was easier than I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. because when I said I'd, I'd give it a shot, it was also I happened to be going to New York. I happened to like, I'll, sure, I'll, I'll try it, you know. But right away, it just kind of gave itself. And they were, um, and also learning to sing that second verse because I couldn't sing the melody. I don't know what the melody was even. So that was just good luck. about being in there? I don't want to point to any of my lines and divide it up that way, but I would say that um, some of my favorite lines are Steve's. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you some of his, they're most definitely his, you know. Everybody wants to be beautiful. How true. Mm-hmm. Everybody has some idea of how they might be beautiful. And sometimes you see, hey, if you look at somebody, like a guy in the movie, one of my favorite people in the movie is that guy wearing those earrings. Oh, yeah. Oh, and you see him as a younger guy, he's like gay, but he's not, you know, here now he's like really flying the the gay banner, you know, he's yep. got like this leather jacket on and this funny, I don't know if this is hair or not, but he's... You know, he's got these two, he's like... He is fully out. He's fully out, and and this is the way people feel. People need to feel beautiful. Mm -hmm. And maybe I added to that and live life their own way. I I think what Steve did, and Steve and Leslie both did, they have like a really... They're as intent at at the sort of... Their version of cross-examining the rational thought of the song is a sort of unerring critical ear for a, for a phrase that might tip it in the wrong. They didn't want anything that was going to be polemic. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to, like, hoist the, the debate flag. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to have me going on in the way I very often do in songs where I start trying, you know, like, really, you know, like, make a case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, you can't do that in a song like this. This is about what you know and what. And so I think between, the, you know, we triangulated between the three of us. We, we sort of our own sensibilities. And by the time we got through all, our, all of our inner critics, we had something that, was, that we can sing. And with this song, like I, I, I asked Leslie to come out and sing on my last tour. Oh, wow. And she's just out there to do that one song. Wow. She was just there to sing human touch and I'd introduce her to the audience and tell her tell them why we well, like how we met and about the song and and there's literally a cheer goes up after the first chorus maybe they need they needed to know something about 
song or not, because I don't think there's any way of just selling anybody in a, on a few words what the song, what the movie is about. You can say that, but do they still, do they really get what the movie is about? I don't, I don't know. Well, they can really know. because of your music video, which is really well done. I think you said your son may have been involved with, yeah. with that. There, it is interspersed with clips of the, of the film. That's, yeah, that was really well done, too. Yeah. But, as you're saying, if I had, had no idea that there was an AIDS connection to this, still be a beautiful song. Well, it has to be about more than AIDS. It can't yeah. be about... And, and so people... That's always true, I think. Some of the... Uh, let, let's just say, if you like, like the song, What's Going On? Yeah. Okay, that's about a guy coming back from Vietnam, wanting to get back, cook, connected back, who has got a particular point of view. So it's, it's full, full frontal... You know, it's, it's, it's stunning for, for the fact that it's full frontal political thinking. Let's talk about where our country's going. But in there, as important as all that is, is just the way in which he's talking to his mother and his father. And the thing that's being presented as the regard and the respect and, the, and the, the, the plea for understanding between generations. And let's go for, let's go for the love that we, we know we have between us. Rather than trying to score points in a political argument, they, they, in that song they start with like unabashedly saying, you know, like you know, father, 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 you know, we don't need to escalate. But then it moves past all that. It, it, it successfully identifies the the debate, and then moves past it to what we know trumps all the all the arguments. Mm-hmm. And this song starts with you know the. You can call it a decision. I, I love that we hit on that, mm-hmm. finally settled on that, because I say it, the, the, the two lines. You can call it a decision. I say it's how we're made. What I love about the language is that I'm speaking about myself. You can say that, I, that it's my choice that I have made a decision to be straight, but I do think it's the way I'm made. And if I say that about myself, it's very hard for me to deny that to someone else and say, like, you know, you, on the other hand, <laughs> you're messed up and that's your choice and you could change if you want. Like, that just don't go there. That doesn't, that doesn't follow. And like I say, I had a really close friend who was gay and uh, he's, he's gone now and he didn't die of AIDS, but I, did, I felt when I saw that movie that I was looking at his life. He didn't have AIDS, but when the AIDS epidemic was first taking so many of his friends he just he told me this was like it's been unbelievable it's like a plague i was like i've lost so many friends he lost many 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 friends and he wound up being a kind of a bathhouse counselor he would go to the bathhouses and tell people like don't you know like please you know have safe sex don't do this you know you're gonna people are dying and he would just try to save as many lives as he could and um, when he died late, he died of cancer eventually, but I do feel like uh, he lived through that. You know, when I saw that, when I saw so many of these relationships, what was, what was more, uh, even stronger stated than the original film I saw was the relationships and the love between these gay partners who, if anything, I liked what, I liked what Dan said about some of the repressive and the sort of uh, the, the, the repressive feelings, the feelings that people should, you know, that you should, we, this should be controlled, boycotted, you know, uh, is so reminiscent, the intolerance and the, and the inability to see the humanity of a certain group is so 
reminiscent of what's going on today that they, they I think they felt that they needed to, to really um, state that strongly in the film. But I always felt that, you know, they, these song, this song will be, this has got to be entertaining musically so that even if like only one phrase jumps out at the end and they're not sure, that'll make them want to listen to it again or they'll eventually know what the song is about. Because there are so many songs that I loved and thought I knew what they were about and then like, eventually was old enough to get it and go, oh, <laughs> that's what this is about. That's the power of music and of arrangement and of the emotional quality in the song. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Really a treat to get to pick your brain about all this. Thank so you. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sons Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wiggler's Series Regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply